Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the mile. Yes! Marco DeMaio! That's what we expected from him! To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I wanna spend some time with you just the two of us. Welcome back for another edition of the Two Solitudes Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins with Kevin Laramay. Rivalry week here at MLS just passed a hard a lot of rival games there, rivalries all over the place. The New York Red Bulls and the Montreal Impact. That's the greatest rivalry anyone's ever known, right, Kevin? Oh, we hate those damn Toros. Oh, yeah, yeah, the energy drink FC. Come on, man. And uh, meanwhile, in Toronto, our uh, our good friends down in Ohio there, I mean, there is a bit of a rivalry there over the for the past, for the first couple of years. Anyway, the few times, not that we want to belabor those kind of issues, but, uh, you know, rivalries, Columbus, Trillion Toronto, Cup. that's what I think of. The Trillion Cup rivalry. Woohoo! Yeah, I know. Meanwhile, you know, they're having MLS rivalry. It's a bit hard to take uh, take too seriously when uh, pretty much, in, in my opinion, the greatest historical rivalry in North American um, politics and sports is, is right here in this country. Uh, the French versus the English, uh, uh, Toronto versus Montreal, it steps, steps, stretches all the way back to, you know, 1050 the you know we're talking about way back when when talking about the the toronto montreal rivalry but uh of course it gets ignored within mls circle sometimes because uh, i don't know american fans sometimes ask ask me with your face what toronto's biggest rivalry is and i have to explain to them that toronto and montreal have been playing each other and everything forever and have been uh, uh gleefully hating each other for years it uh, is kind of what makes this country tick so uh yeah i'm sure why that's not on the rivalry week uh, schedule but uh, you'd have to ask the uh, Ask the smart folks down at MLS headquarters, eh? I know. It's the thing last year when... Because there's always two rivalry week in the season. And the second one, you had like Vancouver and Portland when the real rivalry is Seattle and Portland, which is a crazy one. Okay, Vancouver is part of Cascadia, but it's like the third wheel. They're like, all right, come on. You can be part of it. It's okay. But the real one, it's Seattle and Portland. And talking about a rivalry week, did you see or hear about that game? 4-4 draw that started a couple minutes in was a crazy game, one of the most enter- entertaining game I've ever seen in MLS. Yeah, not, not a lot of defense. I mean, I was <laughs> uh, I, I was watching the Impact game because yeah, that, we, that's same. more relevant to me, but uh, but I certainly did, uh, was following it on Twitter, did watch the highlights. Uh, certainly, uh, Yoruti with a, with a beautiful goal to, play, to give it a bit of a Toronto spin there. Um, we all remember him for his uh, two and a half days in the Toronto FC uniform. <laughs> Give or take. Uh, but, and he clicked uh, Dempsey hat trick, his first hat trick in MLS in over, what, eight years? 
Yeah, we, yeah, it's been a while. Clint uh, Dempsey's back. Uh, I listen to a lot of American podcasts. They're very excited about the return of the Clint, uh, the Deuce. Uh, he he's going to lead them to World Cup glory. Uh, you know, maybe. maybe. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll we'll break down the World Cup uh, as as the day, the days go by. Uh, I know a lot of American fans like to think that I quote unquote troll them. Um, I don't troll them. Uh, I I have a lot of respect for the American national team, but I I'm also not American, so I'm able to look at it with a little bit more of an objective eye. I think than uh, than those closer to it and i think kevin's the same way and uh we wish them well but i think everyone has to be honest that uh it's going to take a hell of a lot more than a than an informed clint dempsey to get out of that group that the americans have been drawn into again ghana in the way has it been twice in a row that ghana booted the u.s out of the world cup yeah there, there's been a couple of uh, couple cycles in a row where where ghana has been uh, a tough ask for the americans and not to mention when you have portugal and uh and germany in there the one that you know <laughs> Of course, they did get Pi Portugal in the group stage in 2002 uh, sure. when they went as far as, as deep as any team has gone um, in a very long time. Well, the greatest, uh, the, the deepest that the Americans have ever gone, the quarterfinals, when they were very unlucky with the Torsten Frings uh, handball, possibly. Okay, absolutely. Um, <laughs> which prevented them from moving on. But uh, again, we'll talk more about the World Cup in the days ahead and the U.S. national team, which is the, uh, the team that we probably well... Uh, from a journalistic perspective, follow most closely in that World Cup. Uh, certainly, I think you'll you'll see more of that coverage in the days ahead. And we are going to talk about the the U.S. women's national team. Um, Sir Manny getting uh, getting the boot uh, uh, yesterday night, kind of surprisingly. We are going to break that down. We're going to put a bit of a Canadian spin on that. What that maybe means if John Herdman might be in play. That's something that uh, that we'll be talking about. Uh, going to talk about the referees, uh, how MLS, after they brought them back to lockout, seems to be throwing them under the bus on a weekly basis by overturning decisions and what that might mean. And, of course, we'll have our roundup of the Whitecaps, the Impact, and the Mighty Reds of Toronto. Uh, Kevin uh, made a, a special point to, to doing taking some, some detailed notes for the Whitecaps. We are trying to get Whitecaps coverage in this. Uh, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, uh, but we do recognize the need to follow them as closely as the other two. But uh, before before we get too far down that road right now, uh, we should really talk about uh, some MLS issues, and, and Kevin and I talked on Friday in our special edition and, uh, briefly about the referee situation, and uh, we haven't seen any controversy yet coming out of this week, but it's only a matter of time until uh, until something will happen, until some decision is overturned, and I'm not sure whether that's the best thing. What are your thoughts, Kevin? I agree with you. I'm sh- if it gives um, like leeway to the referee and be like, I uh, might not call it if he really deserves it. The uh, disciplinary committee is going to give it to him. Or I'll give him the red card, and if he doesn't deserve it, they'll take him away. It gives a like a, a second judgment to the referee, which he doesn't need to think about that in the action. He should just call the game as call the game. And I hope that's what they do. I hope they disregard, and they don't even think about the MLS dis- disciplinary committee. I hope they just concentrate on focusing on the actual game and call it as they see it. But you know how soccer refereeing goes? You know how they're not supposed to overcrowd the referee and they do it every single game and stuff like that? So they do get influenced, but I hope that that doesn't influence them. Yeah, it's a strange thing. I mean, we all like to criticize referee decisions. I, I tend to try and stay away from it. It's hard not to sometimes when you watch the games yeah. and you see a mistake. And, and we have the benefit of, you know, super replays and reverse angles and everything else that that we all understand that aren't available to the person in, in the time. And we all want to see things get right. 
Um, but one of the things I've seen in the fallout, and there has been a lot of fallout to these these referee uh, overturns, mm-hmm. the the disciplinary committee getting involved in, in both adding red cards after the fact, as we've seen in back-to-back weeks with TFC, and also taking red cards away like they did last week. Um, one of the things I heard someone say, and I thought that they nailed it perfectly, was that it was part of North American's obsession with purifying sport to making sure that there's no errors in it and that maybe we just have to understand that that human error, just as it is with players, uh, happens with referees and that we have to accept that as part of it. Um, you know, it, it's a fine line uh, towards what, what we should be reviewed, what video can come into play, what after-the-fact discipline uh, can happen and, and what shouldn't. And, and I don't know what that, that line is. Do you, Kevin? I don't know what that line is, but what I don't get is sometimes a call that's called on Saturday or Sunday affects the result of that game. And then on the Monday, you overturned or overruled or uh, get a bigger sanction on that call. But the result is never affected. Sometimes a team can lose three points because of a call, which those three points will affect their standing at the end of the season because of the parity in MLS. But if you want to go that route, the discom should be able maybe to give the points back as well. So the actual discom can actually have power then if you really want to go that route. If not, just let the referee referee. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I want to go that route, to be exactly. honest. I mean, that's that's a lot of confusion. Um, you know, the, what I would say, it, it's, a, it's an odd little dichotomy here because on one hand, you have uh, MLS refusing to have something like um, goal line technology in play because they, they cite uh, expenditures, and MLS is famous for their penny pinching. But on the other hand, they want to use video after the fact to overturn cards or to, to add cards to the face. So which way are you going to have it? Are you going to be a technology league? Or are you going to be a league that leads the way and sort of um, using what's available to, to get things right? Or are you not? Because if you're going to do it after the fact, then you should be doing it at the fact too. And, and goal line technology, as we've seen in the EPL this year, it would have been this weekend. Yeah, the Premier League. I know if any English listeners out there, they hate it when we use the acronym, but whatever. Um, <laughs> anyway, the uh, if, if you're watching the Premier League, it, it's, it's barely influenced the game at all. The referee looks down on his wrist, you move on. And I, I've seen it uh, once, I believe, maybe one or two times all yep. year where it's actually came into play. But it's good that it's come into play those times because we're talking about a goal. I would like to see, you know, speaking personally now, I don't mind video at the time. I don't want long interruptions in the game. I don't want to see like things like challenges or whatever like that. But I think you have a you have a fourth official on there. Like why can't, you know, if there's a way, there's so many cameras at those games to have a fourth official just sort of as a matter of fact. During the game the watching game. and then like waving a flag, like a blue flag or like a blue card saying, okay, there was a goal like a minute ago. Yeah, or yeah. I, I think that the, there's a way to work it. And I'm spitballing here a little bit yes. too, but I, I think that you know you don't want him reviewing you know, fouls at 40 yards from goal necessarily, but maybe a foul that's, uh, that's uh, resulted in a penalty. Uh, maybe that should be just a quick on the video replay. Oh, yeah, that was good. Or if there's something obvious that the referee missed that was that the referee's about to call a penalty, I don't think there's a problem with a fourth official waving a flag, That's calling him over, just like an assistant might, and maybe reversing it. But it has to be instantaneous like that, and I think there would be a way to make it work. And obviously you can't have this in every corner of the globe, and that's one of the resistance FIFA's always had towards video review is they quite rightfully point out that you know the game is different in the Premier League versus the you know Sudanese first division or whatever <laughs> yeah. like you're obviously there you're going to have um, 
SES kind of differences in these countries that aren't necessarily going to be able to afford it. But uh, at the highest level, I don't see a reason why you can't work with that. But then I think that's a different conversation than than what I know with these overturns after the fact. And I think that at some point you have to wonder really what's the point? Like if you're going to overturn things every day, then you're ultimately giving credence to to the players and the managers at the time to be more aggressive in their in their complaining and their belly aching about the referees at the time. And I don't think anyone wants to see that. Absolutely. And even with the discom doing all that, uh, what it does too as well is it gives uh, all those players uh, an incentive to uh, draw more of foul. Like to literally... Uh, to dive a little more and to bring that aspect as well to the field because they, they'll call it and they'll be like, the referee's going to call it. He might give a card and because he overturned, it gives it, it gives an easier judgment to the referee. That's what I really don't like because I saw cards coming out real, of pockets quicker in the last couple of weeks than in the last couple of years. Yeah, and MLS is, you know, look, MLS referees aren't the best in the world. I don't think anyone's going to argue that. Uh, I don't think it helps them one iota to be undermining their confidence and exactly. their their power out there. I think that you need to monitor referees. You need to work with them. I think you need to constantly be critiquing them on an internal basis. But in terms of this kind of public, no, no, you screwed that one up, dude, that doesn't help anyone. And I think that maybe, maybe it'd be nice if MLS would just rein it back in a little bit. If, okay, if you... If someone takes a swing at someone off the play and you don't see it at the time because the referee's uh, eyes were, were somewhere else, justifiably so, then then I can see maybe the case then for, for a call to be reversed or added on. But but to just routinely, like the Caldwell tackle, I think that's a ridiculous, not to be specific yeah. about this, and I don't want people no, to but... make... Like, that's a ridiculous call to add a red card after the fact. The referee looked at, at it. He made a decision at the time that he felt that was a yellow card to then say, no, no, you were wrong. It should have been red. To me, that is absolutely ridiculous. And I say that not as a partisan Toronto person, but just as an observer of the sport. No, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. And we saw the Andrew Edner red card uh, two weeks ago, which he didn't deserve a red card. And it did not even get looked up and get over overturned or rescinded. And we saw Matthias Laba get a red card this weekend just because of a Oh, he holded the ball, but he was holed up by the other player. And the referee gave him a yellow card. Laba was trying to actually uh, please defense, playing the referee. No, I was not trying to hold that ball. The other guy was holding me, holding the ball. What do you want me to do? Like, there's, and he gave him another yellow and got sent off, and it changed the game. Uh, Colorado tied it up then minutes after. So with with calls like that, and like you say, it gives uh, the referee and the like a they're happy trigger now it's like their their confidence are being rattled now and they're like they're defending themselves by triggering their cards fair enough and i think that if we continue this discussion anymore we're going to get a yellow card for time wasting ourselves so we're going to take a quick break now we're going to come back we're going to break down the uh the, the shocking uh d- decision uh to to fire the u.s women's national team coach and, and maybe uh, spin that into a little bit of what it might mean for the canadian national program Thanks for listening to the Two Solid Dudes MLS Podcast with Wayne Rollins and Kevin Larmay on Canadian Soccer News. If you're going to reach any Kevin, email twosoliddudespodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Two Solid Dudes Pod. Go like our page on Facebook. iTunes, rate and review. Now back to the show.
Welcome back to the Two Saltings Podcast. Uh, as you said, going into the break, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the U.S. women. Uh, not our normal uh, topic, but uh, as you know, we, we've done in the past, we well touch on American issues from time to time, especially as they relate to Canada. And certainly the decision uh, to fire Tom Sermani uh, late last night after... Uh, you talk about the, you know the old adage in PR is if you don't want if you want news buried you release the uh, the press release Friday at four o'clock. Well, this was the equivalent of Friday at four a.m. Um, there was just a, out of the blue uh, firing the the, the coach uh, after a win after a win against China. Uh, in between games, they have another game in four days. It just it was a very shocking decision that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Um, if you read some of the initial fallout, there's a lot of speculative stuff out there. Some of it's not very nice. We're not going to talk about that. Other other of it has a little bit more of a ring to it, and uh, you know, I, I'd be. I don't. My knowledge, I, I do have some contacts in the women's game. I do have some contacts in the in the U.S. side of the women's game, and and you know, I have reached out a little bit today, um, in a speculative sort of way. But by and large, what I'm what I'm saying is, is more speculation than anything else. And I want to be clear about that. But uh, you know, this this it has everything in it. It sounds a lot like a player revolt. And, um, you know, I'm not sure whether that's that's in the best interest of the game, but uh, that that's what it does sound like. Um, for those that are, haven't heard yet, uh, the Canadian maybe haven't caught up. Uh, Tom Sermani, who uh, had previously managed in Australia, had taken over um, after Sundridge uh, had la- left uh, the U.S. program. He basically had continued that program in, in, in the same direction in terms of winning. They, they were fairly successful. They did have a, a bit of a struggle um, at the Algrave uh, tournament in Portugal, finished seventh there. That was the first time they had won that in several years. I uh, had won a few games after that, but uh, he was canned, to, canned last night. Uh, Jill Anna, uh, Ellis, pardon me, is the uh, intern that's coming in. Uh, she's previously uh, had that role before. She's a technical person in the U.S. Uh, Federation right now. She's coming in with that. Generally perceived to be um, an old girls club kind of coach, uh, and that's if you read most of the uh, reaction uh, right now, it's that a lot of people speculating that this is an old girls club kind of uh, kind of move that is going to lead to some of the old guard in the U.S. women's team solidifying their position and um, maybe being resistant towards some of the uh, experimental aspects of Sermani's uh, reign uh, that that ended, in some people's opinion, too soon. That cannot be good. A what fifteen months away before the World Cup? That's not a good sign. No, um, it's hard to, and again, this is somewhat speculative. I'm going to stress that, but uh, it's happened before. Um, You know, I tweeted out last night, my initial thought was right that is like, I don't know why people are surprised that the inmates are running things. The inmates have always run things when it came, when it's come to the U.S. women's team. And that's kind of uh, something that you'll see often. You'll have a a group of players in such a close knit kind of environment that, that will get more power than maybe they need. um, Maybe they should have. And that's if you read again, if you read a lot of the more informed voices out there, there's some worry about whether there's too much power being held in the hands of the, of the inmates and, and whether this is an example of it. But then again, these are the women for better or worse that are going to win or lose them a world cup. And I don't think that if I had to pick uh, a 2015 winner right now, the U S wouldn't necessarily be, They'd be one of my considerations. They'd have to be. The U.S. is never really much further further down than three, four in the pecking order in any tournament uh, handicapping. But I, I might, I might think of Japan first. I might think of Germany first before I think of the U.S. But you know, to fire them right now, this fifteen months out. I mean, on one hand, uh, it's 
one hand, it's not that big of a deal because, you know, you look at there's the, the world women's world cup has been expanded from 16 to 24 teams. So that is going to add additional spot into CONCACAF and Canada, which is really the only team they can even remotely play with the U S and CONCACAF. I know Mexico's had an upset here and there, um, is out of that qualifying. So the idea of the U S not qualifying for the world cup is, is absurd. So they're, they have qualifying coming up, but they're not, really that competitive it's not going to be that competitive of an exercise for them so they have 15 months to there is time to reverse it but you know the question is again what this speaks to the to the players on the pitch and, and whether there's enough will or enough power that's going to be held in the hand of the new coach to make them to let them do changes that's going to benefit this program long term um hard to say uh if if i can say just say sporting wise if we're like football wise do you think that maybe uh like you said it speculatively it may be a revolt and people might not people are always uh, revolting against change and evolution and we're seeing the women's game changing from an athletic to a tactic point of view could uh 15 months away tactically could they be behind because of a change like that against all the other powerful teams in the women's world oh that is the question of whether this would affect and again I want to stress that the U.S. women's national team, because of the sheer amount of athletes that they have to pick from, is always going to be one of the favorites in any tournament, at least right now. It's going to take several years, a couple more cycles anyway, for the U.S. to lose that position, to lose that competitive advantage. So by no means am I suggesting that the women's, the U.S. women's team is not going to be a favorite in 2015. They are. But at the same time, I think on a pure technical level, we are seeing other countries bypass them. Um, we're seeing it in the bypass them certainly at the youth level where they've, they've had hiccups a couple times in the last few uh, cycles. Certainly at the senior level, we're seeing, you know, that the Japan is taking over the Germans are much. Uh, I think that you're just going to see a continuation of that. Uh, the U S needs to get someone in, in place that can look to the future, that can build a team for the future. And, and I think the one thing that some people thought that Sermani was doing was he was trying to work some new, some new people in, trying to work some, some new ideas in, um, the players apparently didn't agree. There was one, um, anonymous quote that was uh, was published by the Washington Post last night from a player that said that he quote unquote had no direction, no vision, nothing. Yeah. Um, if that's the case, then yeah, they had to get rid of him. But I don't know whether there was there was nothing backing that up. And unfortunately, this this player didn't put their name behind their their words, which again speaks to a small group of players that are having an undue influence. And it, this is something that has happened in the U.S. program before. Um, and we'll leave it at that. This is not new. In terms of what it might mean for kids, it's probably very little. Uh, you know, you have a rivalry that that rivalry i use the term loosely and if, if you're rival it's like being rival with the guy that beats you up for your lunch money every day but however um you have one of the your regional rivals uh is losing a player if that's going to hold them back then that might benefit them uh, through sort of negative means but you know the one speculation and i did get an email this morning from someone close to the program that outright put it out there that that maybe john herbman considers himself as part of this uh part of the the possibility to take over. Now, Herdman does have an extension. There will be a lot of people in the Canadian circles that will, will loudly protest about me even suggesting this, but you know, you never know. Uh, it is a, it is a world where people are going to jump at opportunities. They don't come across a lot. And the U S job is, is, you know, one of the one 
it's probably the biggest job in women's football. So he'd be kind of still silly if he didn't have someone quietly investigate whether he has a chance. So he'd make more money. It wouldn't be a big move for his family. There's a lot of advantages out there. And certainly this person close to the program, and this wasn't like a paranoid person. This was a person that doesn't even bluntly like John Herdman in the role. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about some of some of those issues in days to, days to come. But uh, uh, this is a person that suggested that, that this might be something that happened. So we will keep an eye on that kind of thing. Um, certainly the, the speculation of who's going to take over uh, is going to be rampant for the next little while. The U.S. does have a lot of um, internal candidates on the NCAA side, especially, that, that might jump up and might play a role. We'll, we'll see. Uh, Alice, the, the interim, uh, might stay on. Uh, that would be a signal, I think, that, uh, that they do plan to stick with the old girls club moving through to 2015 if she does stay. Um, there's going to be a lot of different things to look at in the days ahead. Uh, I, do I think John Herbin's going anywhere? No, I, I don't. But I'm going to follow the story, and I'm if I can get a chance to ask him directly, I'm going to ask him directly. And, uh, and as the email that I got this morning said, that if he refuses to remove himself, if he refuses to outright say, no, I'm not going to apply for the U.S. job, then we might need to worry. So we're going to try and get that question to him as soon as we can. And hopefully the answer is going to be a negative one. Well, yeah, because I don't think that uh, we need the, any turmoil 15 months ahead of the, we, of we, the Canadian. We can't afford it. We can't afford to have turmoil before hosting what's going to be probably the biggest World Cup in women's football and women's sports history. So it's it's uh, imperative that we keep John Ardubin, I think. Yeah, I think it's imperative that we make sure that we have the best coaching staff in play. And and right now, uh, Herdman seems to be uh, moving the program in, in the right directions in many ways. Uh, with that, um, don't want to speculate too much. It is a, a story that we will continue to follow. Um, but we're going to take a break now. And we're going to come back and we're going to go back into our own backyard and talk about uh, the MLS as it appeared in Canada this weekend. You like the Two Solitudes MLS podcast? Well, take a second and go on iTunes, rate, review our show. We would really appreciate it. And who knows, you might win a prize for the best review. Now back to Dwayne and Kevin. And we're back for the MLS review, the MLS Canadian review. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, listener feedback in the last few days, suggested that we need to give Vancouver more more of our time. And I agree with that. Uh, as I said earlier in the podcast, it is hard sometimes with the amount of hours in the day but uh it certainly is a game this weekend where the the Whitecaps did lose 2-1 to Colorado there was a red card in there for Labu which we're familiar with in Toronto which did play a big role uh Kevin I know you watched that game with great interest uh what, what was your takeaways from from the Whitecaps game this weekend well they got robbed of a of a win basically the way I saw the game before the red card to Laba, Vancouver was playing. We're not dominating, but they were playing decently enough. Maybe not to get the win. Maybe they would have conceded one, but it might not have lost the game the way they did. And especially the way that Laba got his red card when it's in a way that drained all the momentum that Vancouver could have had. Uh, Morales was playing a very good game still. Uh, he's a great addition to that team in Vancouver. The way Morales is playing is impressive. The way he adjusted to MLS in just a handful of game cannot be say, stated so highly. Uh, the way he hit the free kick and got saved by Irwin, but that free kick was almost in. It was a great free kick. Great way to hit it by that player. Morales, a new DP, a young DP. And we're seeing the new wave of South American players coming to MLS. The Fernandez, the Morales, all those as 
all those players are having a great impact this year in MLS, and we're seeing this in our own backyard or very far away backyard, but still in Canada. Yeah, I believe Vancouver's an interesting team. I've watched a lot of them uh, this year in the first years, first few weeks. Uh, you know, we all know Vancouver plays an athletic style. We all know that they uh, they may not be um, artistically the prettiest team to watch, but uh, neither is Toronto, you know, and, and neither are a lot of successful teams in this league. They, it is a league that does tend to favor quick, breaking, striking, athletic play. Um, my question with with the Whitecaps at the start of the year was always whether they were going to have enough firepower to finish off those breaks. Uh, you got a guy like Maddox that is has really struggled and is eh, he struggled to be consistent, is what we'll say. And his attitude, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go too far down that line, but he's rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, there could be a lot of perceptions involved with that, so so we'd be careful in how we see that. But uh, you know, Kevin, what are your takes so far on Vancouver? Do you, do you think Maddox has a did breakthrough? Do you think they have enough firepower there to truly be one of the elite teams in the Western Conference this year? They might have, and they might have more firepower with Maddox on the bench. Honestly, uh, the way he the the type of play he has, in my opinion, the way he's more effective if you bring him in the 60th, 65th minute as a sub. His pace and his quickness either has a Sloan strike or as a winger or something like that. Because right now, he's playing decently. He scored. Like, never mind, he scored this weekend. But he, they were on a three-on-one break. And he made it pass, but the way the pass, the weight was not correctly. It wasn't perfectly. And Morales shot and missed it by like a foot. And if his pass would have been more on target, they would have scored. And that goal would have probably changed a lot of things. They would have played more defensively, probably not had that red card that Laba had. And so just because of a bad pass and impacted the whole result of the game. And that was Maddox again. And he reminds me of an Andrew Ranger type player. They're not played the same way, but just uh, they seem to have the same type of progression in their career in the last couple of years. Both of them were high draft pick, Wenger and then Maddox. And then they both had a decent beginning. Andrew Wenger scored in his second game for Montreal. Maddox scored on his debut, I think. And then they had ups and down and never find their rhythm. And it seems to be going that way still with Maddox. Yeah, and I sometimes wonder with Maddox, even on this podcast, he's easy. He's an easy target. He's an easy person to pay attention to. He's, he's a big personality. Um, he can be outspoken. He's, you know, got the thick Jamaican accent, which almost makes him a character in a lot of ways. So a lot of people pay attention to him. And I sometimes wonder whether he might be a player that gets an undue amount of attention, uh, particularly on that team. Um, I think Carl Robinson, uh, to move it slightly, has deserves a lot of credit. He, uh, If I had to cast, and this would be a very early vote cast, to be clear, but if I had to cast a coach of the year ballot right now, I might, I might put it on Robbo because he has taken that I thought that looked pretty sketchy on paper and has made them pretty competitive early on by playing a very smart MLS style in a lot of ways. Like I said, they they strike fast, they rely on their athleticism, they rely on their wide play a lot, and they and they certainly are playing um, crafty on the road and smart at home, and I think that he deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, whether or not, my question with Vancouver is just whether or not they have enough star power there that they can, over the grind of a whole year, uh, retain sort of tough spots, and we saw it, you know, w- with Laba going down this week. That sort of hurt their hurt their shape, and it they weren't able to recover. And I think the great teams in MLS, and they are few and far between, and, and it's too early to be talking about Vancouver's a great team. 
Um, but great teams in MLS figure out a way uh, to grind out and to to re- repurpose themselves in a, in a situation like that to, to find a way to try and maybe grind out a point or, or, or grind out a better effort anyway. Absolutely. I, I agree with you, you, and I think you put the, the nail on it. Laba really affected the shape of that team, and maybe they should rely a little bit more of a Kakuna Mane. Maybe give him a shot of a more of a he start him starting instead of Maddox. We'll see because Mane had a more of an impact in the, the small minutes he played than Maddox ever had. Yeah, and certainly that has been one of the talking points in Vancouver earlier this season whether he's going to get more time or not. Um, yeah, the the Whitecaps uh, certainly are you know with the loss and Toronto's win, uh, the Whitecaps no longer have the best record in Canada that does fall on TFC now with their surprising victory in Columbus and I think that probably we'll move on and talk about that game now Uh, very um, some people say it was a surprising result and I I do I am going to say it was a surprising result in time you get a win on the road with that many injuries you do have to be somewhat surprised but I I always felt I don't want to overplay this this underdog narrative that seemed to catch fire in Toronto in the Mm -hmm. days leading up to the game over I don't want to play that at all because I, as I got in an argument with Kurt Larson, the Toronto Sun, um, the day before, that it was beginning to become a little much. All this, like, oh, there's no chance for Toronto stuff. This is still a team that started two DPs on the night. You know, the, the, yes, they were they had some holes in their lineup, but by and large, this was a team that still had Michael Bradley playing for them. And to, and to call them this colossal underdog in the lead into it was was a bit absurd to me. And certainly, we did see it in the first 20 minutes before, not 20 minutes, the first 10 minutes before Bradley's goal. Uh, TFC really had a lot of the ball. They were they were doing some wonderful things with it. They were some creating th- some things with it, and then they got the goal from Bradley, and who was was absolutely unbelievable in the first half last yesterday. Just a pure like a, I was with my my girlfriend. Joked that uh, the heat map would have just been a, a solid red rectangle yesterday, <laughs> right? That that was the Bradley heat map, red rectangle. Um, <laughs> oh no, and Bradley had a quite a week even. If you seen him play with the U.S. Men's National Team earlier, he had like a crazy game. A goal in his system was involved in every single good play of the whole game and basically carried Toronto through the whole game as well on, on Saturday. Yeah, he was subbed out late because he had given up so much energy. But uh wouldn't surprise me if uh, when the uh, press release comes out later this afternoon, if Michael Bradley's name is on it as the player of the week, uh, it would be well-deserved. Uh, he is, I think, the early to, to go with our early season uh, voting again. Uh, he would be my first-half MVP across the league, and I don't think I'm being Toronto-centric when I say that. I think Michael Bradley has been the most valuable player to his team in the first month of the season. Um, and you were doubting my choice of Bradley as an MVP in the Prediction Podcast, which I stand by... Well, yeah, and if, if again, if I had to cast the vote today, and and no one's asking for our votes cast in <laughs> April, but if I did have to, uh, it would be Michael Bradley. But a big three points in the road. Um, you know, Toronto after they got the lead, uh, they they did what they do. Uh, they they made the they took the middle of the park away from Columbus. They forced them out wide. That was a tactical decision. They gave a lot of the ball up. Uh, once again, Toronto was in the 30% in the percent in the possession. And I do think they need to address that a little bit moving forward. I think you'd rather have the number around 45 than 38. Um, that's kind of a bit arbitrary when you're pulling the numbers. But you just want a little bit a little bit more of the ball. It's hard to defend that long for an entire season. You're going to run into problems sometimes. Uh, yeah, but- just a sheer uh, percentage, just a lot of percentages. You'll, uh, if you have 38% instead of 45 Eventually, it'll caught up to you. It might be the one goal that makes a difference in a game. 
Yeah, and, and Columbus, again, Toronto did well at keeping them outside. They they did well at forcing, like, it was crazy, man. I think 18 crosses or something Columbus tried or something in the game. It was an absurd number. I'd have to, I'll break the, the game down a little bit more later on. But uh, basically, it was it was by design. Um, but you could have a situation where, you know, it hits the wrong the wrong defender than mm. the back of a defender's head or something and bounces the net. Like that stuff happens just through dumb luck. So you want to cut that down a little bit, but on the day it worked uh, despite the fact Columbus had so much of the ball. There was really only one uh, real shot on goal by Columbus. It was a Tony Chaney uh, in the second half with about 20 minutes to play, 30 minutes to play had a shot from about 18, 19 yards that, that forced Cesar uh, to, to make a diving. So that was the only real great attempt Columbus had on that for all of the possession they had. And I think that we need to to reward that and applaud that because, you know, Toronto came in and, and understood the situation it was in. It got the early goal and it had a good game plan to, to neutralize. And, and when Izzy got the goal late uh, to, to salt it away, that was a that was really a just rewards, especially for a player. I think I'm going to talk about. Yeah, about I, was surp- I was surprised by his play. To be honest, I was surprised by his goal too. Yeah, and he isn't. You know, for those that don't know, um, he was in a situation where he wa- he didn't really realize he was walking into a very bad situation. Um, the team that he went to over there had uh, thrown a match uh, just prior to him getting there. They were involved in a match pitching scandal. They weren't paying players. Um, it was really just a bad situation, and he, because of that, had to walk out of his contract and has not played other than one national team game last November, really hasn't played in almost a year. So uh, for him to get a goal was a really nice just reward for him and and something that I think that uh, Canadian national team fans uh, should should be excited about because it, it's nice to have him back. He is a quality player that has played at a decent level uh, for a Canadian, um, and I had to put that caveat in there, but it is true. For a Canadian at this point in the development, he is playing at a decent level so to have him get some other minutes in mls uh, should put him back in the national team standing and and help the national team program which frankly needs all the help it got <laughs> well he's probably um, going to start the next game yeah <laughs> I, I well yeah they, we'll talk about uh they they the national team did announce a game this week so oh, really wow. yeah they're, they're playing uh playing in may so uh we'll, we'll have uh, we'll break that one down uh when we get closer but uh uh, certainly, um, yeah, a lot of work to be done there. But uh, I, I do, uh, I do, as I've said in many platforms before, I think that the that the um, current direction of the of the Canadian men's national team is is more geared towards the U twenty three program than it is the men's senior national team program. But again, we'll talk about that in the days to come. Um, I think we'll wrap up the the show now. We'll we'll move it to Montreal with a with a two two draw. Yeah. You know they came from behind in the second half. I think you have to take some something from that. Uh, they dominated but... the whole game. Actually, there was a record set on the pitch in the Big O Saturday. Marco Davao has five shot on target and was not able to finish. First of all, it's a club record for the amount of shot on target, and it's probably the only time in Davao's career where he did not put one with five clear shot on net. Yeah, and is I think that that's the key with any team. Like uh, those that, that follow know that I'm I'm very fond of the stat total sh- total shot ratio TSR. Um, Montreal really struggled with that last year. They weren't generating enough attempts. They weren't generating enough shots on target. So even when they had the hot start, mm-hmm. those of us with more of a statistical look at the game could kind of see that they would they were due for a correction. 
Um, so as long as Montreal is, is creating shot opportunities, as long as DeVille is getting his opportunities, eventually they will start to come and you will see a bit of a correction again to use it mm-hmm. the other but it go the other way this time. So I wouldn't be too worried about it if DeVille is creating those opportunities. But at the same time, it's it's a, the hole's just a little bit deeper. And as I said in the move, you know, in a couple podcasts before this, can't win the MLS Cup, but you can lose it this early. And I don't know, what is the panic situation right now in Montreal with only the two points gained? I don't think I'm, we're hitting panic button yet. Just because, like you said, our TSR is very good this year so far. We're one of the top leading in the league. We just We're just missing that final percentages of goal scored. That's the only thing missing. I think there was like three other balls cleared off the line this weekend still. I think it's up to like 25. It's like a mind-boggling, the amount of balls has been cleared off the line by the opposing team defenders. Again, this weekend, Ramiro could have scored his second goal. And if we had goal line technology, that ball might have crossed it. It was really, really close. But no, cleared off the line. Again, Montreal is getting robbed by those calls. And you know that game, the one player that made the biggest mistake was Marco De Valle in that game. A blunder pass that was intercepted in his own territory, just a small pass, really, with the wrong weight on it. No weight whatsoever. It was like a, a feather of a weight. Just a small pass, missed it. The Columbus player, not the Columbus, sorry, the Red Bull player took it and ran with it, and they actually scored on the exact same play. And at the end of the game, that's the play that cost them the game. It cost them three points. Well, two. Two, two in this case, yeah. The moving slightly away from the the play, uh, you know, I think that there is a certain tremendous truth that just Montreal needs to f- find a way to find some more firepower, and I think that the trade uh, last week had a bit to do with that. But uh, I, the big O, there was about twenty four, twenty five thousand there, yeah. uh, which in that building is, you know, it's it's a good crowd, but in that building can seem pretty sparse. It's two games in a row that they played to start the season there. Um, how much of an issue is it to to take two games out of Saputo and move it into to the Big O each year right now? And is this something that Joey Saputo should be looking to move away from moving forward and trying to to get the stadium open quicker? Saputo, I think so. I think it's a buzzkill because you get so hyped with the beginning of the season, but you don't start in your own stadium. You don't start in your own things. I don't know if you're like me, but it's fun to be in our own things to create the buzz and atmosphere. And Saputo, you know, even if it gets a little cold. We can dress up. We just put a heating pitch. We'll be fine. Just make sure it's, there's ways to do it. And then we wouldn't even have to go through through the whole snow on the on the roof debacle at the, at the Big O. So it'd be even easier. You can avoid all the problems of the Big O. Just stay at home. Stay at the Saputo. Find a way to do it. You know, I was born and raised in the 80s. And back then, we wanted something. We found a way to do it. Might not have been the best way, but we found a way. I and mean, I think it's time we found a way to take care of that problem. Yeah, and I mean, I think that as we've seen here in Toronto with three of the first four games on the road, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it can be a bit of a problem when you, you have to, to to play outside of your home so much early on because of the weather situation. But you could work a similar situation over Montreal. You could play a couple, you know, you could, you, what that means is you get more home dates later. I mean, there's ways to work around it. It's a challenge playing in a northern climate. But 
it's, it's always struck me as odd that they're playing so many games there. And it's, I'm, it's one of the things that's worrisome about the Toronto situation here next year when they're possibly doing the renovation at BMO Field, which was approved this week. So um, that probably looks like it's going to go ahead. Is it, it might look like there might be a couple um, Rogers Centre games that have to take place here. And I think there's a real worry about that. It was one thing when we had the LA Galaxy game here. And I mean, it was one thing, you know, in Montreal when you had Santos Laguna a few years ago or whatever, when it's a, a game that everyone recognizes can't be played outside of that and there's a greater demand for it and all those sort of things. And it can be an exciting one-off. But I think that when you do it too often, it, it starts to just become a drag. It loses its uh, its uniqueness. It's like the Rittich Classic at hockey. You do too much of them in the Winter Classic, it loses its magic. And the Santos Laguna, you, you nailed it. The one-offs are perfect. Santos Laguna was 55,000 people. The Beckham, 60,000 people. You should keep it for those special occasions. Now, with having three, four games a year there at the beginning of the season, it's uh, it kills it. It kills the magic. And that maybe uh, doesn't help the play on the team, on the pitch. The way the impact plays at the Big O is different than the way they play at the Saputo. And, you know, those two, there's a couple of points in the beginning of the season that you lose at home on that surface could, uh, could impact the, the schedule and the standings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I, as anyone who's listened to me long enough knows, I'm not a big fan of the midseason friendly. But if you are going to play a, a big game or a game in that big, those big stadiums, then maybe you need to to think about bringing in that uh, that kind of casual fan that doesn't really necessarily go to the MLS fan. If you yeah. you know they're they're not good for a lot, but they are good for their money. Sometimes you can drag it out. So you know you play a Real Madrid or a Barcelona or an Inter Milan or whoever at. Uh, at the Olympic Stadium against the impact, maybe you draw forty, fifty thousand. You can get a little bit of money for the club, and and everyone gets to see a big spectacle event in there with with some big stars that are half assing it through the game. But uh, you know, was, not, you know, you just got me thinking, Lorraine. Montreal did play AC Milan a couple of years ago with Ronaldinho, and it was great. And when they did that, they put grass inside, and it was able to hold up a couple of days, and the game was perfect to play on that position. Montreal's team said important enough to do that at big goal for them. To get a couple points in the bag? No. I'll never run the pitch. So, you know, the whole thing needs to be rethink. Just put heaters underneath the Saputo grass and just play outside like real men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's what Toronto has the underheating. And it does, it's not a perfect scenario. When you have a winner like we had this year, you are going to have problems with the field. But I think that you got to play in your own stadium. And that, that is my issue with the, the impact game. I, mean, I turned that game on and I'd actually forgotten uh, that, that it was, I knew Henry wasn't playing, but Henry wasn't playing, but I, uh, Henry, I was Toronto centric there for a second <laughs> um, that Henry wasn't playing, uh, but I'd forgotten why until I turned on, I was like, Oh God, big O. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of a disappointment. It loses a spectacle, especially when you put uh, 25,000 in a stadium that fits 60 uh, a bit much. But uh, I think on that note, uh, you know, um, it, it, tough week for two of the th- the three teams. Well, we had a win, losing a draw this week in Canadian. Uh, I won't belabor who got the win, but uh, on that note, I, I think we'll we'll call it a day, and uh, we'll see you next week on the Two Saltudes Podcast. Good things might come to those who wait, but not for those who wait too late. We gotta go for all we know. Just the two of us, we can make it if we try.